0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Wow, it's been a while since I have recorded and released a podcast episode. Had several things going on. I feel like the months of April and May are busy anyway. And so no surprise, they got really busy for me. I had two trainings. So one was the ITAP symposium that's for, they hold for CSATs, which is always great. And they bring in really knowledgeable and uh, informative guest uh, keynote speakers. And they do a good job of like keeping you engaged and interested in what they're talking about. So that was nice. And then, Breakout sessions also usually very good and did not disappoint this year. And then I did a training with a couple of my colleagues for lifespan integration. You may not have heard much about them. They said in the training that they don't really do a lot of marketing, That's not how they choose to spend their money. I heard about them from one of the employees who uh, works for me. He knew about lifespan integration and so he had been trained in it when I was doing his supervision. And it was interesting. I was looking into doing it last year during COVID 2020, and they weren't doing trainings because they want to be able to do them live. And I have to say, it was really nice to go to a live training in person, and thank goodness for vaccinations, right? So I had that, and then my husband had planned a trip for the two of us to kind of just go away, short trip to California, get away spent every day on the beach. It was lovely. It was nice. In the midst of a busy April and May, also made it a little busy. But I'm here, I'm back, going to be releasing podcasts on a regular basis. So we are, if you have lost track, we are doing a series on the 12 principles. And we are on principle number six, which is honesty. Now we all know the importance of telling the truth. I think most often We've usually been told how important honesty is from a young age. And it's usually stated in a direct, simple way that makes it seem like being honest is easy. You just tell the truth, right? That's the right thing to do. And yet, I don't remember, for me, really being told how to live an honest life. I was told stories, and within the Christian faith, I was told um, stories, you know, coming from Jesus or God about, being honest and telling the truth and how they were not happy if I wasn't going to do that. But I don't really recall lessons on telling the truth, right? They would give an example. Here, you know, Susie's in this situation, what's the right thing to do? And of course, you know what the right answer is. And so you agree that yes, yes, everybody in my Sunday school class, everybody's saying this is the right answer. I'm not saying the right answer is to lie. But nobody really talks about the difficulty of living an honest life and how hard it can be sometimes to tell the truth, especially when what you're saying isn't going to be well received. Now for addicts, when addiction is the center of their world, they lived a double or a triple or a quadruple life. They were saying one thing and doing another. They maybe were telling different people, different stories, telling themselves contradictory stories all while trying to keep track of everything that they were saying. And nobody can do that. Eventually, the world of lies and contradictions implodes on addicts, and that's when usually you'll see them show up for the first time at a meeting, at a 12-step meeting, or in a therapy session. Or maybe it's the second or the third time they're showing up to a 12-step meeting or in a therapy office. Patrick Carnes, in his book, A Gentle Path Through the 12 Principles says, Honesty is plain, simple, and clean. Plain because it rarely requires elaboration. Simple because we don't have to keep track of multiple versions. Clean because we don't harm others with it or have to make amends for it. I like that definition of honesty. It reminds me too, I've done an episode before on the book The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker, and he has a list of things like that should be a red flag about people that you should not be trusting. And one of the things is that they elaborate, right? They go into a lot of information, and he says that's a red flag because they know they're lying. They know they're not being honest, and so they're trying to support their lie by giving all of this information. And he says, and so you, you don't know if it's a truth or a lie, but when they're elaborating, you can start to pick up on the fact that this probably isn't true. And they know that, which is why they're trying to explain to you why it is true. Again, what Karn said, truth or honesty is plain because it rarely requires elaboration. We're just stating the truth. Now in recovery, whatever it is that you're recovering from, whether that's an addiction, whether that's trauma, whatever that looks like, recovery requires us to be equally honest with ourselves as we are with others. John Bradshaw observed, because lying to ourselves is the core of all addictions, the various 12-step groups stress living in a rigorously honest way. Now, I wanna point out that we're on principle six as I said at the beginning of this episode. So we've made it all the way to principle six before we talk about honesty. Sometimes when I'm working with partners, they don't think this is an ideal timeline for arriving at working on honesty. And again, in 12 steps, they're talking about living rigorously honest. So it's not the first time that somebody in recovery is going to hear or come across this concept of being honest. And I understand that for partners experiencing betrayal trauma, there's a great deal of their pain and suffering rooted in their spouse's dishonesty, in addition to whatever they've done. Um, The dishonesty and the lies and the deception are almost as big of a pain point as what they did. But I think that... If we're just looking at the 12 principles, right? We increase acceptance, which was principle one. Then we move into awareness, spirituality, responsibility, and openness. I think all of those things, those principles, lay a foundation for them being able to practice honesty. The key question that's associated with principle six is what must improve? Now, if we were to ask somebody that, at the beginning of this whole thing. I mean, they'd come up with an answer. I know that they would, right? I've done this for a long time. They would come up with an answer, but it's not one that I'm gonna put a lot of effort into because they haven't developed awareness, right? There's not a thing, a place for them to start to accept difficulties, accept limits, accept that they can't just through Herculean effort make all of these come about. All of the things that they're wanting. So I don't know that we could accurately take an assessment of this question, what must improve, and answer this question if we haven't worked on being able to accept limits, to know what is real, to look at things from a place of believing that I am lovable and I am good enough even if I make mistakes, from a place of understanding who I am And how do I trust? Seems to me that working on the first five principles is going to bring us to a point where we're ready and capable of practicing the principle of honesty and being real and in reality about what must improve. Benjamin Disraeli said, one of the hardest things in this world is to admit you are wrong. And nothing is more helpful in resolving a situation Than it's frank admission. So again, that's some of what we're trying to look at. I think it is really hard to say, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I misunderstood. All of that, like it it requires some acceptance and some awareness of ourselves. Carl Jung knew that being honest with ourselves also involves embracing our shadow. Gabrielle Gon-Kellner described the shadow as the darker side, the less socially acceptable one, the bits you'd rather disown or deny, the stuff that might unconsciously drive you in directions that your more public self could feel embarrassed about, shocked over, or even ashamed of. Everyone has a shadow. It's part of being human. Everyone also has to make a decision about our shadow. We can reach out to it, get to know it, accept it, and learn to work with it, or we can make it our enemy and try to keep it at bay and hidden. Dr. Carn said, when we embrace our shadow, it becomes our ally and it profoundly strengthens our sanity and our recovery. When we treat it as an enemy, it forces its way into our life, demanding that it be heard, often creating sabotage or chaos. In a moment of exhaustion or frustration, we suddenly burst out in an over the top, out of control reaction. If we continue to deny or ignore our shadow, eventually it will start to ruin our life and we won't even realize it. Now, when we do a sixth step, we become ready to have God remove all our defects of character or our maladaptive coping mechanisms. As we practice the sixth principle, we go deeper. We become ready to let go of our defenses against our own shadow. And we understand that this is a necessary part of our healing and recovery. As I said, your shadow includes all those parts that you hide, avoid, or repress. But not all of the things in the shadow are weaknesses or drawbacks. Some can actually be strengths. Others can become strengths as we allow our inner observer to notice them, to take inventory of them, and as we're living in consultation and we're practicing openness. So example, I think this is true for me and maybe true for others. I but I think as a woman, as a female in our patriarchal society, you know, I very much was socialized to be agreeable, to be kind nice, uh, approachable, right? To be just smile and make people's days better, right? We females are the nurturers of the world, right? And that was very much socialized into me. And so in order for me to say what I felt or believed or to, you know, like especially when I knew that that wasn't feedback that was going to be easy for somebody to hear or to use my voice or setting boundaries, right? For me to do any of that and to gain and work on and practice and develop that skill, I had to go into my shadow because I had to do things that weren't nice, that weren't always kind, right? I could say it in a kind way but also firm, right? I could say it and be assertive and confident and then be told I was intimidating. All of that feedback that I was getting around using my voice, around setting boundaries, right? I had to move into shadow in order to, I often will say, I had to betray others in order to be true to myself. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do And that's sometimes what's required with living an honest life, right? I am letting you down in order to be true to me. I am telling you I feel differently, or that's not me. I think it's also important to be aware that some of our strengths, when we overuse them or misuse them, actually are liabilities. This happens when we rely on them too much, right? That takes us into a place of being out of balance. I often tell clients our, our strengths, or even like talking using 12 step language, I will say our character defects are, I think our strengths either overused or underused. And so if we dial it down or we dial it up, we're usually going to find a strength that is hidden by our defective character. So I think that's important to recognize, right? I had a client I was working with years ago. Funny guy, had a great sense of humor. I would say that that was a strength to him, right? He could, like his timing sometimes was impeccable. Like we would be in a group setting and things were serious and things were tense. And he would use humor as a way that deepened the emotion that people were feeling but also in a way that made us laugh, right? Sometimes laughing through tears or laughing in the face of this deep pain. That was a gift. But also when I was working with him, we had to talk about that he could overuse that strength and overuse that gift in a way that it actually didn't deepen it. It actually didn't provide this group connection with what was happening, but it avoided going to those deep areas and kept things at the surface. I think when we start to understand our shadow and we start to hold what's contained in our shadow and we're practicing living an honest life, we begin to see the complexity of ourselves and the people in relationship to us we begin to see that any strength can also be a liability. That for example, persistence, while that's often considered a good value and a character trait to have, can also keep us holding on too long or stuck or obsessing on one option and not seeing many options. Now, as I referred at the beginning of this episode, this principle, and I would say not any of the 12 principles exist in isolation. Honesty that doesn't work in tandem with responsibility or acceptance or awareness can be as harmful as a lie. I was talking with a client the other day about this very thing. And she said, so you're saying being brutally honest isn't a good thing? And my response as I thought about it, I said, I I think the key word here is brutally she stated that she thought of honesty in terms of brutal honesty right people in her life from a young age had been brutally honest with her but it didn't feel good and it actually didn't feel good when she was brutally honest and as we talked about it and i've worked with her for a while so i've gotten to know quite a bit of her story i don't know that it was the honest part i think it was more brutal i don't know that her family Lives in this honest awareness place, I think, you know, they live with some brutalness that veils honesty. Honesty involves more than just telling the truth, it also includes keeping confidences, not secrets, but confidences, and respecting a person's vulnerability in order to create a climate of safety. I used to tell my kids, you know, I having four girls and when they were young, you know, you, people would say, oh, do you have kids?" And you're like, oh, I have four girls. And they'd be like, oh, right. And I guess, you know, there's just a negative connotation. I mean, I think that happens to moms who have four sons as well as I've talked to them. I think they're, you know, they get a similar reaction, just this kind of like acknowledgement, that like that's going to be super hard. And, you know, one of the things I know that, girls can be mean to each other and they can be mean in ways that boys aren't. I think sometimes at least the stereotype, right? I haven't raised boys, but that stereotype is that boys are more overt in their aggressiveness and girls are more passive in their aggressiveness. Now, my girls could also be, you know, physically brute with each other, but they could also, you know, I, I saw that passive aggressiveness With them sometimes and with the friends that they had. So we talked a lot from the time they were young, right? I also, you know, was working with trauma and adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse at the time. And, you know, the stats were that one in three little girls are sexually abused. Well, I had four. And I wasn't willing to sacrifice one of mine if that's what the stats said. And so, I knew I couldn't be there 100% of the time to protect them. I knew that I had to help them also learn how to uh, protect themselves. It's a little bit off topic, but I'll bring it back. And so one of the things we talked about was you know, that we don't keep secrets. That secrets are damaging, right? And, and this proved to be true. Sometimes, you know, they'd be at a slumber party. Well, we didn't do, sl- they didn't do sleepovers, they did late nights, but, you know, they were at a slumber party. Everybody else was sleeping over. And they'd come home and say, oh, so and so was telling a secret. And then this girl got mad and sad and she started crying. And I said, it's not good to, to tell secrets, secrets hurt, which is, you know, directly coming from what I had socialized and conditioned them to believe. That secrets hurt, right? We can keep confidences. And my kids knew what that was. They would sometimes come to me or their dad and say, hey, I need to tell you something in confidentiality. And we respected that, created that safety around that. We could have surprises, but we didn't do secrets. So again, I think when we keep those confidences, we are creating safety and we are being honest with what we're agreeing to. If I'm agreeing to keep somebody's confidences, then I need to keep that confidence. Dr. Carnes in the book gives examples where people can hurt others with their honesty in the way that they're saying it. He gives examples of, I'm just telling you the truth, right? I'm just telling you like it is, it's for your own good. That may make the person who is being brutally honest feel good about being brutally honest, but it's not helpful. Maybe it's saying, I'm not going to enable that kind of behavior, right? I need to tell you this truth in this way because I'm not going to enable your behavior. Things like that, things that we say that are not actually helpful, that aren't actually loving or kind, do more damage than speaking the truth. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. In the book, The Polyvagal Theory in Therapy by Deb Dana, I don't think I've introduced the polyvagal theory in an episode yet. Maybe I have. Anyway, she talks about, she says from this book, eons ago, when mammals joined the world that previously had been dominated by reptiles, the middle ear bones detached from the jawbone and the nerves of the ventral vagus integrated with the nerves that regulated the middle ear muscles. This important evolutionary event tied the ability to process sound to autonomic state, meaning we don't have to think in order to do that, right? It's just something that our autonomic nervous system takes over and does without us having to be conscious or aware of doing that. We are hardwired to be soothed by certain frequencies. Low frequency sounds and vibrations send a neuroception of life threat and initiate a vigilance for predators and a sensitivity to dorsal vagal immobilization, while high-frequency sounds and vibrations launch a neuroception of danger and a sympathetic nervous system mobilization response. Now, those are some big words. I'm gonna still talk about that a little bit later, so don't get hung up or pause yet to look up those terms. I'm gonna get into those, but I'm just reading you this to give you this understanding as we're talking about actually what is helpful in being honest. She continues, Sound is one of the strongest triggers of a neuroception of safety. The autonomic nervous system recognizes features of prosody or the music of the voice. It is not the words themselves, but the patterns of rhythm and sound, along with the frequency, duration and intensity of speaking that reveals our intentions. The autonomic nervous system via neuroception is listening beneath the words for sounds of safety and friendship. We are more focused on managing those who threaten or hurt us than on understanding what our nervous system needs to feel safe. So I think that's something to keep in mind as we're practicing, moving more into honesty with principle six, and as we're getting honest with others, how we communicate honesty or honestly, also has a big impact on whether or not the person receiving the information feels threatened or friended by the information that we're giving them. Practicing the principle of honesty helps us develop an ethical understanding of what honesty really means. We begin to see that it's part of a larger network of values that we have and that we are practicing. Now, some of you may have heard about the window of tolerance. This is a term that was coined by Dr. Dan Siegel and is now commonly used to understand and describe normal brain body reactions, especially following adversity or stress or challenge or trauma. The concept suggests that we have an optimal arousal level when we're within the window of tolerance that allows for the ebb and flow the ups and downs of emotions that are experienced by human beings. Now I've talked before about on a scale of one to 10 living in the four to six or four to seven range, right? So that window of tolerance that uh, Dan Siegel's talking about would be that four to seven range where I'm living, right? Eight, nine, and 10 moves me into hyperarousal. One, two, and three moves me into hypo arousal. Now, we may experience hurt, anxiety, pain, and anger that can bring us close to the edges of the window of tolerance, one way or the other. But generally, if we have good self-regulation skills, if we have a good support system, then we're going to be able to utilize strategies to keep us within this window of tolerance. Now, sometimes we may feel too exhausted, sad, shut down, And so we could then easier shift out of this, right? Sometimes for addicts, they know of the halt, right? The hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, that that is going to make them more prone to relapse or slips, right? Again, they're moving out of that window of tolerance due to some of that just not having the bandwidth to hold themselves in the window of tolerance. Now, as infants, when we have healthy attachment interactions, With attuned, consistently available, nurturing caregivers. This lays the foundation for optimal development of our brain and nervous system. Over time, this co regulation, right, or this assisted regulation that's happening between caregiver and infant allows us to learn how to effectively auto regulate or self regulate, right? So then we learn it through this relationship. And eventually we can start doing that for ourselves and we can do that with others. We can help regulate others. Understanding the function of how people are responding and what may be needed to effectively shift this emotional state out of hyper arousal or hypo arousal into the window of tolerance is critical for finding effective strategies to shift arousal that doesn't lead to further harm to self or others you know leaves this individual with a sense of shame. So again if you've ever in a moment of anger or defensiveness or arousal said something that may be true but it has a bite, right? It has an edge to it that cuts. You know what that means, right? That we want to be able to respond and know what we need in ways and and have those strategies that doesn't result in further harm to self. Or others or leave us with a sense of shame afterwards. This can be referred to as a false refuge right in that it provides the illusion that it's helping speaking this truth or saying this but in the end the problem is still there and it might even be bigger now that we've layered on a layer of shame guilt or a sense of failure or doing it wrong being broken as we've responded in a way that we didn't want to, right? Or we look back on with a regret. A true refuge is something we do for ourselves that effectively allows us to shift towards our optimal arousal zone while building competencies and taking care of ourselves in a manner that feels good. Sometimes when I'm working with clients and maybe they haven't had a voice, right? And so it's gone into this dual life, There's another way that their truth or who they are starts to come out but it's hidden or you know maybe they're just agreeable don't really have that sense of self and they just go along to get along when we're working on finding their voice right it's not uncommon sometimes for them to have no voice and then go to the opposite extreme of having an opinion about everything or saying everything really loud because They're making up for all of the years when they didn't have a voice or their voice was so soft that it wasn't heard and didn't leave an impact. And I usually will say, okay, it sounds like we're moving to this other extreme and maybe you need to experience that other extreme in order to find the balance. Right. But I want to say, like, just because you found your voice and you dialed it up all the way does not mean that we found balance. Now neuroception, I used that term a minute ago. Neuroception is a term that's coined by Stephen Porges. So he's the developer, the researcher, the author behind the polyvagal theory. So it's a term that was coined by Stephen Porges, and it describes how neural circuits distinguish whether situations or people are safe, dangerous, or life-threatening. Neuroception's explains why a baby coos at a caregiver but cries at a stranger, or why a toddler enjoys a parent's embrace but views a hug from a stranger as an assault. It's not so much of a thought process as it is a felt sense and an internal response that's happening. Again, from this book written by Deb Dana, she talks about, and and I will work with clients, on building kind of this, a ladder, Okay, so she talks about understanding this ladder of how our nervous system works. So on this ladder, there would be three different sections, one at the low end, middle range, and then at the top of the ladder. And each section on the ladder represents an autonomic state. So at the ventral vagal state, which is at the top of the ladder, then we have the sympathetic nervous system, which is that middle of the ladder, And then at the bottom of the ladder is dorsal vagal. And each stage in this image has a couple of rungs, right? So there's varying layers or levels that we experience within each of these ventral vagal sympathetic and the dorsal vagal. So the ventral vagal, just to understand, the ventral vagal is that window of tolerance, right? That's where that window of tolerance would be, where we are feeling safe, and we're feeling social. Our sympathetic nervous system, when that gets turned on, we're mobilized, but we're mobilized into either fight or flight. And then the dorsal vagal actually takes us into immobilization and we're collapsed, we're shut down, we're in a free state. So it's helpful as we're working with clients and as clients are working through their various stages of recovery, also understand what's happening internally and how to make sense of their responses. So as I'm working on this with clients, I will have them start to map out how this looks for them. How does it feel in the ventral vagal? How does it feel in the sympathetic? And how does it feel or where does it feel in the dorsal vagal? So, for example, in the sympathetic nervous system, I will ask them, I'll say, remember a time when you felt the sense of sympathetic, mobilizing energy moving through you? You might feel a sense of too much energy flooding your system, a sense of unease, perhaps even a sense of being overwhelmed. You might think, one thing is going to put me over the edge. And then I'll say, just let enough of that come into your mind and your body to get a flavor of it. And then we're gonna map it. We're gonna talk about how does this feel? Where does this show up? Then we'll move into the dorsal vagal. So again, think of a time when you felt the dorsal vagal sense of disconnect, a sense of collapse. There's not enough energy to run your system. If you were in a room full of people, it might feel as if there's a plexiglass shield between you and them, where you can see them, but you just can't reach them. It might feel like depression. It's hard to find hope. Just let a tiny bit into your mind and your body to get a taste of it and then map it. And then with ventral vagal. So think of a time when you felt the flow of ventral vagal energy, the sense that everything is okay. Not wonderful or perfect, but okay, the world is safe enough and you can move through it with ease. Bring this moment to life and let it feel you core to skin. And when it's fully alive, let's map that. So that's how I try to work with clients to get them aware of where they are in their nervous system and make sense of their different responses so that they can start to feel where they are on that ladder and bring awareness and know what is needed. Now, often because I work with addiction and trauma, as my client is filling in their map on this ladder, I usually will have them notice how to sleep look, what's the relationship to food and use of substances or other behavior how does that line up in the three areas on the ladder and then when they finish that when they finish each section actually i ask them to complete two sentences i am and the world is these two sentences identify core beliefs at work in each state and often even though they're not new realizations I find that clients often recognize them in new ways. Now, I think that as we're becoming more and more aware through neuroscience, brain research, information about the brain and the nervous system, I hope that we get to a place where parents and loved ones, caregivers, teachers, bosses can help by identifying and labeling or just like making observations, right? On how things are looking. So something like, it looks like you're feeling overwhelmed. Can we take a break? Dan Siegel refers to this as name it to tame it. And there is research showing that naming it, stating what it is, allows for a sense of understanding and being seen as well as validation. I find a lot of times When clients are naming something, like sometimes they might try on a different word as they're trying to find the right word to name it with, right? And when they hit that truth, I see them settle. I see a calming that happens when they get the right word for it or the word that feels right to them. I think we should be encouraging each other to focus mindfully on noticing how we feel, how our body feels, and then identifying what we need to feel right again? Or how can I help so that that feels right again? So that the goal is to essentially broaden the window of tolerance, increasing capacity for people to hold emotional experiences, even intense ones, without becoming dysregulated or going into a state of hyper or hypo arousal. Now, in my work with clients, as we start to understand the window of tolerance, as they're able to identify the three phases on the ladder of the autonomic nervous system, I will then start to talk about, and I'll substitute the term window of truth for the term window of tolerance. Have you ever had the experience of feeling activated? The sympathetic nervous system is kicked on, you're feeling defensive, moving into that fight or flight sense, Adrenaline's pumping. We got some cortisol releasing into our system. You can probably tell by the way I'm describing this that I have had this experience personally. And then in this moment, somebody speaks truth, or in some other way, truth comes into clarity. It may be a very painful truth, or a difficult truth, an unsettling truth, and yet your nervous system calms down in the wake of it. You actually feel yourself start breathing now that the truth has been seen. There's a model called Adaptive Information Processing Model. This model posits that the present difficulties are informed by past experiences that are inadequately processed and maladaptively stored. Now, for most clients, it's not just about a resolution of the negative, but it's also about the opportunity to have a full range of emotional response to what actually occurred to them. In the last episode, I had a panel with some of my female colleagues on burnout. And in there, Emily and Amelia Nagoski talk about differences between stress and stressors. And that sometimes we can stop the stressor, but that doesn't adequately address or take care of the stress that's happened in our system so again that adaptive information processing model also talks about right that maybe what occurred to an individual stopped and so the stressor is eliminated but the stress all of the feelings and all of the reactions and the emotions that they felt about what happened didn't get to be expressed or weren't allowed to bring voice to. And so that's something that we do in sessions, right? Sometimes we do that in group sessions because we know that emotions predate reason. Our emotional wiring or our limbic system is in place from birth, but our thinking wiring isn't in place until we're around 12. And even then we're only beginning to learn how to use it. But because of this discrepancy in development, I mean, you think of a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old has had a lot of life experience. Young children can't use their thinking to make sense of and to regulate their emotional responses to life. As I said, we learn the skills of self-regulating through being in the presence of an adequate external regulator. So a mother, father, or an attuned caregiver. We depend on them not only to actually calm us down when we're upset, but to show us how to do that through their own behavior. They model that for us. And when we get out of balance, they woo us back into this state of balance. They hold us physically and emotionally until we restore our own calm, until our nervous system settles. And gradually we absorb the ability to do that for ourselves we internalize their regulation and make it our own or we internalize their lack of regulation and we make that our own when our skills of self-regulation are well learned during childhood often they feel as if they've just come naturally as if we've always had them that's just how we respond but when they're not well learned we usually will reach to sources outside of ourselves to provide that sense of calm and good feeling that we cannot achieve on our own, or to recapture that sense of calm that we remember having as a small child in someone's arms. So that may be drugs, alcohol, food, sex, work, technology, shopping, money. It's not these substances or behaviors in and of themselves that create problems, but our relationship to them how we use or abuse them. This is the process of recovery and of therapy. It's a process of going deeper with our honesty and really understanding what must happen. Now, often I find in working with clients that often they bounce back and forth between hyperarousal and hypoarousal, consistently missing this window of truth. Or this window of tolerance. They get angry, they shut down. Angry, collapse. Angry, freeze. Avoiding the truth that's waiting for them to see. A couple weeks ago in our men's group, the topic we were discussing was trustworthiness. And, you know, there were some there were some denial statements that I think for at least to the two therapists, myself and Adam, and some of the guys in the group, it was pretty obvious that the person talking about their trustworthiness had some denial going on. And Adam had made this comment. He said, I'm gonna tell you now, if you're in active addiction, you're not trustworthy, right? We don't compartmentalize that good. This person, their denial was kind of like, I'm trustworthy in all of these areas, and then in this one area, I'm not trustworthy and it's out of control and there's chaos. And so Adam was kind of challenging that statement by saying, that's not how that works, right? And actually, another group member got pretty activated going into hyperarousal. You could see it, right? We were on Zoom, but you could see it. You could feel it. I could feel it. And he got really defensive and he said, So you're saying if you've had an addiction, you're never trustworthy right? And Adam's like, I didn't say never. And he's like, well, you're saying if you're an addict, you're always, right? And Adam's like, again, I didn't say always, right? But he was getting reactive, right? He was going into that hyper arousal and sensing a threat in what we were discussing. And it was kind of hard for him to move out of that. Like we were saying, okay, like you're activated. That's okay. But like, I, I don't think you're hearing clearly, right? And, but he was upset. And you know, if you're, upset the other members of the group are going to feel that and have some concern and they're going to look to the group leaders to do something right and so I said I'm going to just push pause right here and let you feel what you need to feel I'm going to encourage you to take some deep breaths and we're not going to like focus on you right we're not going to be watching you but know that we're coming back for you right and we are concerned about this we're going to be checking in with you right so we we did a different exercise that was going along with trust and then we were processing the exercise and he began talking and was saying he he actually what happened was he got into the story of where like of his impaired thinking his false belief about himself and how that began and who gave him that false belief about himself and I I was okay cuz I'm like okay he was reactive and now he's responding. That's two different states, right? When he gets into the story of what's happening, that's a different place than being in hyperarousal reactivity, right? So I was thinking, I mean, still pretty high, like it was emotional. At one point, you know, he was having a hard time talking because he was crying so much and So there was a lot of emotion going on, right? He's hitting those edges of the window of tolerance. But the fact that he was in storytelling and responding to what was going on said to me, we're, we're in the window of tolerance. It probably doesn't feel good to him. And so at the end of the group, you know, we were checking in with him again. And, and I think I made the comment similar to that. Like, you know, it, it looks like something shifted, like still intense. There's a lot of emotions that have come up for you today, but it it looks like, you know, there's a shift and he, you know, we were wrapping up group. And um, so the next day he sent an email and wasn't really happy with how group went overall. And with my, like reference kind of my comment about that something had shifted and he was saying like, I didn't feel like anything shifted. I felt uncomfortable from the beginning. I would say probably not just uncomfortable, right? Like it was more than that. It was more distressed than uncomfortable. And I felt uncomfortable at the end of group. Like, and Jackie said something shifted, nothing shifted. Right. And so, you know, we talked about like what, what I observed and what I saw and that like, yeah, I understand, you know, that there may not feel like a lot of difference between a seven and a six or, an eight, and a seven, they may feel really similar, intense, right? Because we're just starting to tolerate and develop some tolerance for some truths, right? And as he got into the story, he was telling some truths. This is what happened. And this is how I interpreted this. And that's how I internalized this. And that's all part of his story, right? And he's He was tolerating it differently at the end of group than he was at the beginning of group, even though it probably still felt intense for him. Our autonomic awareness is a part of our experience of self. Body awareness is an integral part of self-awareness and shapes that sense of who we are. I have a lot of clients that I start with who will say, I don't know who I am. I believe them because an impaired ability for autonomic awareness affects our human being. With autonomic awareness, we learn to listen to our embodied stories. Through befriending and attending skills, we can begin to bring curiosity as we explore our daily experience, looking at how we interact or isolate, join or not join, move toward or away, speak, or stay silent. As our window of tolerance expands and we have more truth, truth about us, truth about our story, we learn to attend to our autonomic state and experience the state as separate from our familiar story. And this moves us into a deeper understanding and honoring of our adaptive survival responses and allows us to reframe the meaning of our autonomic states of arousal into a more honest and workable truth. John O'Donohue said, our bodies know they belong. It is our minds that make our lives so homeless. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time. Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.